All right, February, you came and went so quick. <laughs> hey. hey, everyone, it is February 28th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I am Mosh Wanunu. That February Mosh gets you every time. Gets you so short. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, our first joint show in about 10 days now. How are you? I know the band is back together. Um, I am so happy to be back. I spent about a week and a half in Florida. I was on vacation at my in-laws in Del Boca Vista. Um, and of course, which is obviously a joke. Um, <laughs> I took a little mini sojourn to DC for your award, which was also awesome. Uh, but the vacation was great. Lots of family time and lots of sleep, which was really nice. Well, let's see if we can work off some of the rust here and uh, get going on today's headlines. <laughs> yep, tons of news to get to. A really big day at the Supreme Court for the President's Student Loan Forgiveness Program. DeSantis versus Disney. The Florida governor imposes some new rules on the theme park and one of Florida's largest employers. The First Lady says the president is ready to announce another presidential run. While the White House reacts to the headlines about the links between the Wuhan lab and covid a couple of new studies out on the importance of sleep to your heart health. A new at-home test for flu and COVID will soon be hitting the market. And Mosh, what is the opposite of health? How about a McDonald's meal with a side of Krispy Kreme donuts? All right, that's going to be available in an increasing number of the restaurants. And Mosh, of course, is on this day in history. Jill, it's quite a mix today. Nylon, pretty in pink, and the biggest TV finales in American history. Okay, let's start, though, with President Biden's student loan forgiveness program, which goes before the Supreme Court today. The oral arguments will focus on the limits of executive power and who has standing to challenge the $430 billion loan initiative. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on two legal challenges to President Biden's student loan cancellation plan that starts at 10 a.m. Eastern. U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cordona says the Biden administration has the authority to forgive student loan debt under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003. It allows the secretary to waive or modify loan provisions in response to a national emergency, in this case, the coronavirus pandemic. Republican opponents think that the White House has gone too far. Yeah, so right now, lower courts have temporarily frozen the program. I know a number of people in the audience have already applied to it. Millions have applied to it, but it's currently frozen as this gets litigated. In the two cases the Supreme Court will be hearing today, each party makes a different claim of standing. In the first case, this is the case brought by six Republican-led states. The states argue that the cancellation plan is causing them to lose revenue. They previously collected revenue from federal student loans by operating guarantee agencies, which play a role in servicing older federal student loan plans. So their argument is this is unconstitutional and has cut state revenue. The second case that the Supreme Court will be hearing today related to this makes a more abstract argument. They argue that the arbitrary nature of the Biden plan, which grants $20,000 in forgiveness to some borrowers, $10,000 to others, and some are not eligible at all, damages borrowers who are not eligible at all. So they have a couple people who are not eligible for the loan, arguing that it should be struck down because of that. The Biden administration is arguing that the challengers in both cases are not able to prove that they've been injured by the debt relief plan. And so that's where they're going to begin here. Assuming that the court decides that the two parties, the states, as well as the students who are not receiving 
forgiveness have standing, then the argument will go to the fundamental issue about whether the White House even had the authority to carry out this program without corresponding congressional legislation. So the White House is making its case on that 2003 law, the HEROES Act, saying it gives them the authority to cancel student debt. HEROES was initially put in place during the Iraq war to provide relief to service members and their families. But the White House believes it can also apply to the pandemic, to COVID. While it is clear the secretary has some authority to modify loan terms, there is disagreement about whether the White House's plan exceeds the authority granted by the law and whether this would have needed to be passed by Congress. So depending on how the Supreme Court rules here, and we're not going to know their decision till the end of June. That's when the big decisions come out. Millions of borrowers are sort of hanging in the balance here. About 26 million people have already applied for student loan relief. More than 16 million of those applications have been approved already, but then the program was frozen. And so the Supreme Court will hear this case. So far, this 6-3 conservative court has ruled against Biden in a few cases here. So we will see whether they will be able to successfully make the argument. The administration will uh, in this case. Uh, but no matter what, we will know the answer by that last week in June, early July. Okay, Moshe, here is a question for you because I was having this discussion with some friends and one of the questions that came up was, you know, besides for the fact that this is extremely popular politically, what is the rationale? If somebody took out a loan for college, why wouldn't they be expected to pay it off? Right. So there's multiple loans here, right? There's private loans and there's federal loans. In this case, what the administration's working on is forgiveness for the federal loans. The argument that has been uh, made in democratic circles for a while now is that you have people with an average debt somewhere in the $40,000 range and that uh, you've had Democrats who want the president to waive the debt altogether. And so this was something that was discussed in Congress among people like Liz Warren, Chuck Schumer. Eventually Biden conceded here and went with this. Yes, for political reasons, this is positive for his base, for younger voters, which Democrats want to continue to win the vote of. But beyond that, think about it like this. If you waive $20,000 from millions of Americans, that is now $20,000 they can spend on other things. Now, some of them might be in further debt, but in some cases, this might mean that some can help uh, afford a deposit on a house quicker or buy a car or a healthy economy in other ways. So that is the larger economic argument that's made beyond the sort of feeling that Loans uh, have been unfair. The interest rates are sky high. In many cases, you know, the people who took out loans were 17 or 18 years old. They didn't know what they were getting into, but they were sort of pushed into it. And so those are among the, the arguments that are had here. Okay, let's head to Florida now, where Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill Monday that takes control of a special tax district surrounding Walt Disney World. State Republicans last year targeted Disney after it publicly criticized DeSantis over a law they call a parental rights bill that restricts classroom instruction of gender and sexual orientation. It has been dubbed the don't say gay measure by opponents. In a move viewed as retaliation for Disney's views, Florida lawmakers this month passed this bill, which DeSantis has signed into law. It authorizes the governor to appoint supervisors to oversee traditional municipal services like fire protection, public utilities, waste collection, and road maintenance in the region where Disney World operates. The quasi-government entity also has the authority to raise revenue to pay outstanding debt and cover the cost of services. 
Yeah, so Walt Disney was given this sort of autonomous area, and it basically almost operates like the Vatican, uh, Joe, like in this area, 40 square miles in Orlando, and Disney governs itself, uh, or has, since the late 60s with Walt Disney World there. And so now you have the governor clamping down on Disney. It's seen as retaliation here. And what has gone into effect here is sort of a compromise. Initially last year, there was a call to eliminate the autonomous zone altogether, right? Make it Florida all over again. Have the counties deal with this 40 square mile area the same way they deal with any other roads or buildings or zoning in their counties. But then there were concerns that this would burden local taxpayers with debt. It turns out Disney has taken out billions in debt here uh, to build stuff, et cetera. They've operated this in their own special way. And so now they've led to a compromise where they're like, okay, we're not going to eliminate this district altogether, but we will put new officials in charge. So DeSantis has five loyalists, Republicans, who are friendly to him, who are now managing Disney. He specifically said no recent theme park experience, but they'll be overseeing this whole Disney area. Disney has sort of conceded this in a way. And the idea here is this will make Disney beholden to DeSantis. This will put pressure on Disney not to criticize DeSantis because now they have this board of supervisors close to DeSantis. And it's a punishment for Disney. You said bad stuff about what I was doing with this parental rights bill. And so tisk tisk, I will take away some of your authority. Tisk tisk. Okay, the loss. <laughs> <laughs> The the law signing game is DeSantis gears up for an expected presidential run. In taking on Disney, he's trying to further his reputation as a culture warrior. The feud reinforced the governor's brash, go-it-alone leadership style, penalizing a massive employer, tourism driver, and political donor in the state over the company's stance on a piece of legislation Keep in mind, Disney World is the largest employer in Central Florida. They have close to 75,000 employees, and they draw in about 36.2 million visitors a year. At least that was the number in 2021. DeSantis also has a new book out today. It's called The Courage to Be Free. He discusses a bit of the back and forth with Disney over the last year in the book. In recent weeks, he's been looking to expand his political network through meetings with donors, elected officials, and conservative influencers all adding to speculation, he could soon make a presidential announcement. Yeah, that Republican field right now is just Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Officially, everyone is waiting for when he makes his announcement. I I was going to say if, Jill, but it would be quite a shocker if DeSantis chooses not to run for president this cycle. And on the issue of presidential politics, just want to mention that First Lady Jill Biden wants Americans to know that her husband does plan to run for a second four-year term. And that she's all for it, even as a a formal declaration of his intentions has yet to be made. She was asked by CNN about her husband's plans while she was on her just completed trip to Namibia and Kenya. She said he expects him to announce a campaign and she dismissed a question on whether he might opt out of a run in 2024. She said, I am all for it, of course. And this is really important. Her opinion considered critical for the president's upcoming plans. He's 80 years old and he would be 86 by the end of a second term. He has repeatedly said that she basically has veto power here. Um, and it, it's basically up to her. Yeah, she did multiple interviews on that trip, Jill. She did one with the AP on Friday where she was asked if the president was running again. And she replied by saying, how many times does he have to say it for you to believe it? At the same time, the president himself did an interview with ABC 
on Friday in the White House uh, with David Muir over there. He couched it a bit, telling Muir that he intends to run. He didn't give an indication on when he will make the final decision or when he would make an announcement saying he wants to get some other things done. But it does appear that uh, Joe is a go for four more years. It is interesting, Jill, because I was reading an op-ed that just popped in the New York Times on Monday from Greg Craig. Greg Craig is a former Obama administration lawyer. He's a, a longtime Democratic official. And he suggests in the op-ed piece, and I'll link to it in the show notes, that given Biden's age, he should turn over the selection of a running mate to the party, to voters, to the convention. Apparently, FDR did this in 1944. Ed Stevenson, former Democratic nominee who ran against Eisenhower in 56, also turned it over to the convention. And Craig says in this op-ed piece that given the likelihood that Biden will be in his 80s and he does have a chance of dying, he owes it to the Democratic Party to give them a chance to select the VP. This would be the most important VP in history, given that we're dealing with the oldest president in history. Practically speaking, how would that work? So when would they do that? So, I mean, conceivably at the convention, uh, you know, which takes place next summer, you typically have somebody has to nominate the president, right? Uh, I nominate Joe Biden to be the next president and all the states vote on it. But this is fait accompli, right? Because the primaries take place and we know how this is going to go down, typically. Then somebody has to raise their hand and say, I nominate Kamala Harris to be VP or I can nominate whoever. And if they don't have sufficient votes, they're going to go to multiple rounds. And this is how things used to be back in the day. I mean, it's only in recent history that things are cooked in advance, right? Through primaries. Uh, we used to have these open conventions. I mean, you look go back to 1968 and the Democrats, um, you'd have to go back, I think, around that time for the Republicans as well. And so in this case, it's just so interesting because you have Democratic officials openly saying, being like, the president is old, he may die. How do we deal with this? And what does he owe it? Does he owe it to the party that if he's going to choose to run for reelection, at least his running mate should be chosen by the rest of the party? Obviously, death is extremely morbid. I mean, he even if he doesn't die, he could potentially not be fit for office anymore and have right. to turn it over to a vice president. Is there any thinking that if and when he decides to run, that he would pick a different running mate, not Kamala Harris? I haven't seen any serious speculation there. Um, you know, there there were some struggles for her early on, but it does appear at least openly and, you know, through kind of leaked sources that they appear to be getting along well. And and by the way, he makes a point in this op-ed piece not to say that Kamala Harris shouldn't be the VP, but that it should be up to the party to decide it and not just Joe Biden. Okay, Jill, before we get to the speed read, let's thank a couple of our sponsors this week. I want to start with Blinkist. I've been using the Blinkist app for more than a year now as a quick way to get summaries of books that I just don't have time to read or I need a quick refresher on. It's essentially audio Cliff's Notes, if you remember Cliff's Notes from school. Blinkist gives you summaries of books or podcast episodes in 15 minutes. I like to listen to them either on my commutes or while working out. Right now, Blinkist offers more than 5,500 books and podcast summaries, and it's a wide range of topics, parenting, communication, leadership, politics. They provide curated collections. It allows you to really grow a little bit more every day Really easy, really quick. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for the Mo News audience. You can head over to Blinkist.com slash Mo News. That is B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, like in a blink. Blinkist.com slash Mo News to start a seven-day free trial and get 25% off Blinkist premium membership. Again, that's Blinkist.com slash Mo News to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. 
We'd also like to introduce all of you to Apostrophe. It's another new Mo News sponsor. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team so you can get customized treatment for your skin. It is very convenient. Apostrophe offers virtual dermatology consultations, including for acne and dark spots. Sometimes getting a dermatology appointment can take a while, and this is really simple to use. It can be done from home. You answer several questions, you snap a few selfies, and then a board-certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. We have a special deal for our audience. You get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash monews when you use our code monews, that's M-O-N-E-W-S, and you'll also get a discount on medication. Again, to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash monews and click get started. And then you could use our code monews at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only five bucks. Okay, time now for the speed read from the Wall Street Journal. Following up on that story we told you about yesterday, the White House said on Monday, there is no consensus within the Biden administration over the origins of COVID. This comes after we learned this weekend that the U.S. Energy Department now believes that the pandemic likely originated with a leak from a Chinese lab in Wuhan. The Energy Department had previously been undecided on the origins of the pandemic, but has now joined the FBI in saying the virus likely spread via a mishap at the lab. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby saying that President Biden is determined to nail down where COVID started, but that there continues to be broad uncertainty within the administration about its origins. He told reporters, we're just not there yet. Yeah, so this story understandably has very high interest. Lots of people asking questions on the Instagram feed about this. We should repeat that the Energy Department has made its newest judgment based on new intel, albeit with low confidence. They say they have low confidence that This came from the lab in Wuhan. The FBI, for its part, has moderate confidence that it came from the lab in Wuhan. But then you have a wide spectrum of other beliefs across the U.S. government. You have four other U.S. government intelligence agencies, along with the National Intelligence Panel, that still believe the pandemic was likely the result of natural transmission, likely from an infected animal. Beyond that, you have two other agencies, including the CIA, that are still undecided, Jill, I listed the about 20 intelligence agencies in the U.S. government. You know, every military uh, wing has one, Defense Department, the State Department, you know, pretty much uh, most major departments have an intel wing. Biden in 2021 asked them all to investigate and come back. And so far, they're all over the map. But of course, in the past couple of days, we've taken note of the Energy Department coming over to the FBI side here with the Wuhan lab. From the Washington Post, Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of the conservative media empire that owns Fox News, acknowledged in a deposition released Monday that several hosts for his networks promoted the false narrative that the election in 2020 was stolen from Trump. Under oath, in response to direct questions about hosts Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs, and Maria Bartiroma, Murdoch acknowledged that they did endorse false information about Dominion voting systems. He says, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight. Dominion has filed a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox, arguing that the people running the country's most popular news network knew Trump's claims of voter fraud during the 2020 election were false, but broadcast them anyway. Jill, this is a really fascinating filing. It casts Murdoch, who, by the way, will turn 92 years old next week, as a chairman who was both deeply engaged with the leadership of Fox News Channel about coverage, 
but also unwilling to interfere. He says in the deposition that he could have done more. These new documents and a similar batch released earlier this month reveal the top executives within Fox News, this is text messages, emails, etc. It shows that they were skeptical and even mocking about the allegations from the Trump administration, from the lawyers, from Rudy Giuliani, but endorse them anyway on their shows for ratings purposes, because they knew, and they say this explicitly in these text messages, that their audience wouldn't like negative stories about this. They wanted to believe that there was a chance. And so they endorsed these ideas, which included allegations about Dominion, which makes the voting machines, that they had a secret algorithm that allowed Democrats to fix the elections effectively. The legal question here, though, Jill, is whether Fox committed what's called actual malice, That's the legal standard here. Fox argues that so far, everything that has been revealed does not sufficiently prove that the company acted with actual malice. That's the high standard to prove defamation that hosts had knowledge that something was false or had reckless disregard for whether it was false. Obviously, Dominion here believes that these leaks, these depositions, these text messages and emails show actual malice. It'll be up to a judge, though, to determine that later this spring. From USA Today, the FDA has authorized the first over-the-counter at-home test that can detect and differentiate between the flu and COVID-19. The Lucera COVID-19 and flu home test is a single-use test that can be purchased without a prescription. A nasal swab is used as with an at-home COVID test. So in 30 minutes or less, the test will display the results positive or negative for influenza A, influenza B, and COVID-19. Jill, I feel like this would have been really useful in your household this past winter. (laughs) (laughs) Funny you say that. I saw this meme and it was like, welcome to kids when you're either getting over being sick or about to be sick. I mean, it's pretty much what it is. It's like you're just permanently sick at, at a certain point when you have young kids. Yeah, that appeared to be the case across the country this winter, especially also throw RSV in the mix there. So Lucera began making this COVID and flu test available in Canada in August. It's currently priced there at $70. The question here is how much will it cost here in the U.S.? Insurance coverage may impact how much consumers pay. And the CEO tells USA Today that they will be announcing a U.S. price tag and release date sometime in the near future. $70? That feels a little steep, no? And that's Canada. Wait for the American (laughs) price. You could just go to an urgent care and and have to just pay a small copay. I guess they're trying to put a price for convenience there, Joe. From NBC News, a pair of studies released last week at a leading cardiology conference found that while insomnia may raise the risk of having a heart attack, consistent high-quality sleep habits could add years to your life. People with insomnia are 69% more likely to have a heart attack compared to those who do not have the sleep disorder, according to a new analysis of previous research presented at the American College of Cardiology's annual conference. The study examined the connection between insomnia and heart attacks through data on more than a million adults averaging age 52 from six different countries. People were categorized as having insomnia if they had at least one of three symptoms, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, or waking too early in the morning. Check, check, check. (laughs) Jill, we got to get you checked out immediately. Um, Over an average of nine years of follow-up, people who habitually slept five or fewer hours were 56% more likely to have a heart attack than those who had the recommended eight hours a night, regardless of age or gender. Yeah, so that was one of the studies presented at this conference. They also presented a second study 
uh, that was focusing on the quality of sleep, researchers found that good sleep habits can benefit the heart and overall health and even life expectancy. They also found that 8% of deaths from any cause could be linked to poor sleeping patterns. That's almost one out of 10 deaths there. People with highest quality sleep lived longer, unsurprisingly, according to the study, four and a half additional years for men, two and a half additional years for women, an estimated 10% of Americans have some form of insomnia. So that puts us at just under 40 million Americans. And apparently insomnia is more common among women, according to one of the experts who spoke at the conference. From CNBC, McDonald's will start to sell Krispy Kreme donuts at approximately 160 Kentucky locations starting next month. It's an expansion of the fast food giant's initial test in October. Nine McDonald's restaurants in Louisville started selling Krispy Kreme donuts. The larger test is meant to assess customer demand and to understand how a larger scale launch would affect restaurant operations. So starting March 21st, McDonald's customers at select locations will be able to purchase Krispy Kreme's glazed chocolate iced with sprinkles and chocolate cream filled donuts. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> Jill, it'll be interesting to see how this impacts McFlurry sales, though I can imagine it'd be pretty tasty to put the uh, to dip one of those Krispy Kremes in a, inside a McFlurry. Krispy Kreme will be delivering fresh donuts daily to McDonald's restaurants. The donut chain uses what's called a hub-and-spoke model that lets it make and distribute its treats efficiently and freshly. So they have these production hubs, which are either stores or donut factories, that are able to send off fresh donuts every day to retail locations like grocery stores, gas stations, and now it appears McDonald's. The goal here is for basically each of them to be scratching each other's back. It comes as consumers have been cutting back on restaurant visits as inflation has pressured everyone's budgets. So to get customers back into restaurants, spending more, they are looking at these types of promotions right now. And based on an initial test, Krispy Kreme has been uh, very bullish on this. And so at least for now, it's Kentucky, but we'll see if this ever goes national. All right, finally here, we have On This Day in History for our last day of February this year. It's not a leap year, so it's February 28th. I just want to mention, Mosh, um, before you start, On This Day, not as fun solo, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not as fun, though I will say you did a great job. Uh, I I appreciate the uh, presidential history that you did on Friday. I was very proud of it. I I, I felt <laughs> like I was making you proud with it, so I'm glad you liked it. I was grinning ear to ear as you uh, <laughs> as you gave the folks fun facts about impeachment history. With that, we're going to start in 1935. Happy 88th birthday to nylon, invented on this day in 1935. Credit for the creation of nylon goes to a certain creator named Wallace Carruthers. He was a chemist in Dupont's laboratory in Delaware. The race was on at the time to create a synthetic fabric. And so nylon is a synthetic fiber made from coal, water, and air. Its first use was for toothbrush bristles in 1938. But then when World War II came just a year later, nylon started turning up everywhere. Parachutes, combat uniforms, tires, fabrics, carpets, ropes, uh, of course, women's stockings, one of the most famous uses of nylon. And so a happy 88th birthday to nylon today. All right, fast forward a bit. On this day, 10 years ago in 2013, Pope Benedict XVI became the first pope to resign in nearly 600 years. He lived, of course, side by side with the new pope, Pope Francis, for just about a decade. Benedict died uh, at the end of December at the age of 95. The big question right now at the Vatican is whether Pope Francis, the current pope, will now follow in that tradition of resigning or just do the normal thing that most popes have done, which is serve until he dies. 
A couple birthdays today. Architect Frank Gehry turns 94 today, considered one of the most influential and important architects of the last 100 years. And we'd also like to wish a happy birthday to country music artist Jason Aldean. He's 45. All right, Jill, as always, we're going to end with a bit of pop culture here. 37 years ago today, Pretty in Pink, starring Molly Ringwald, John Cryer, and Andrew McCarthy, premiered in theaters February 28th, 1986. But Jill, as I was looking into this, did you know that the original ending actually had her and Ducky getting together? What? No, that's crazy. So, so so I had a little bit extra time before we got started here. So I was like digging around in pretty pink fun facts. If you've seen this film, obviously, you know, Molly Ringwald's character gets together with Andrew McCarthy, the popular guy at the end. But the original ending had her and Ducky getting together, but they tested it in front of audiences and they actively booed that ending, which John Hughes is like, really? Like, you know, weren't you kind of rooting for Ducky? And people are like, absolutely not. We want her with the popular guy. So they reshot the ending and reshot it with Molly and uh, McCarthy getting together and then made a point of like having the um, woman at the end express interest in Ducky's character so he wouldn't just go home too sad. Okay, my mind is blown. This is, it's amazing, amazing trivia. I think I would agree with audiences, though. I don't really see her and Ducky. Totally makes sense. And one of the things that they were also concerned about in with that ending was that it would look classist, meaning like that rich people can't get with people who don't have as much money. And so that was a point in reshooting it too, to show that like someone, you know, who doesn't have money, someone with money could make it work in the end. All right, a bit of musical history, just uh, marking a moment here. 25 years ago today, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion reached number one on the Billboard charts. It would spend 10 weeks atop the Billboard Airplay charts, garnering the largest radio audience in American history at that point. Some of you may remember that as the iconic theme song of the show M.A.S.H., on this day, February 28th, 1983, 40 years ago today, the series finale for the classic CBS show uh, aired. It was the most watched TV finale in history. 105 million Americans watched for over two and a half hours. The number peaked at 121 million people in the final six minutes. Though, Jill, it got me thinking, and I've dug up the numbers. So MASH is the most watched TV finale in history. Okay. Can you name the rest of the top five, two through five? Oh, my God. All right. Um, well, I have to give Seinfeld a, a shout out. OK, so Seinfeld is number four with 76 million people watching that finale. OK. Uh, Friends. Friends is number five, 52 million. So now you're missing number two and number three on the all time list. Number one is MASH. Number four is Seinfeld. Number five is Friends. We have two more. I think you'll be able to get one. OK, maybe I'm um, sticking with just the, what was it, must-see TV on Thursdays? Yeah. Cheers? Cheers is number two. 80 oh. million people watch the finale of Cheers. So you have MASH at 105 million, Cheers at 80 million. I'll give you this one. The Fugitive, 78 million. That aired before our time. Seinfeld with 76 million, and then Friends with 52 million. The top five most-watched TV finales in history. I would have never guessed The Fugitive. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I even think I've heard it. of it. Um, I, well, you've seen I the film. Say, you've, seen the, you've seen the film probably. The, the movie, 90s. yeah, the movie yeah. is great. I was going to either guess um, The Cosby Show mm. or maybe All in the Family, which I know was super popular. Both of them are in the top 10. They're, they're lower down on the list. Interestingly, all these shows that have these huge audiences for the finale, 
all go back more than 20 years. Looking at like most recent finales, you know, some people would have thrown out Sopranos. Only 12 million people watched the Sopranos finale by comparison. Game of Thrones got about 20 million viewers. It was a different time, right? It was just a totally different time when there were fewer things to watch and it it was like appointment viewing. The simple days, Mosh. Yeah, the the simple days. Jill, I'm going to try my best to incorporate some quizzes as part of On This Day moving forward. (laughs) Don't make them too hard, though. This was right up my alley. I I saw that Seinfeld was also in the top five and I was like, all right, we're going to give her one. I feel like you missed my Del Boca Vista reference at the top of the podcast no, when I, I said I stayed there. <laughs> That's I, where I, I obviously, like, my in-laws, oh, obviously that is a fictitious place. Oh, I got it. I didn't want to interrupt you. I want to see if people are in <laughs> on the inside joke at the top of the podcast. And Mosh, a huge thank you for holding down the fort for the week, uh, for even more than a week. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Jill. Appreciate it. Everyone deserves some time off, especially, and and by the way, need some sleep based on our fourth speed read today. So, (laughs) um. (laughs) Um, All right, everyone. A huge thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. The reviews make a huge difference. Appreciate some of the reviews we've been reading recently. Uh, So grateful for everyone's support. And don't forget, beyond the podcast, to follow us over on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H for the latest and greatest. All right, bye, everyone. Later, y'all.